0: Thank you for the silence, God, through which uh, we hopefully, by your grace, remember uh, your ever presence with us when we're singing, when we're not singing, when we're occupied, when we're not occupied, when we're alone, when we're together. You are with us. We don't have to ask you to come here. We don't have to ask you to be with us. You are. You have been, you will. We only ask that you would incline our hearts by your grace toward you, that you would help us to see and hear you and you through your word. Give us hearts that are good soil to receive your word, grow in us things that bring you glory and bring us joy. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if My words deviate or stray or are inconsistent with your word in any way. May they be quickly forgotten. Be praised among us. Have your way with us. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Christ the Lord. Amen. This is not a true story. This is uh, theoretical, hypothetical, could have happened, maybe did, fictional. Fictional. Four kids, four siblings in a room together, four cookies on a platter, four delicious looking tasty cookies on a platter, four, four. Not all the cookies are the same size. One is significantly bigger than the others. Everyone in the room is aware of that. And the cookies are to be eaten and there's a parent in the room, how will those cookies be distributed? It's kind of a no-win situation. The parent may initiate and say, here, to one of the children first, have a cookie, and there will be this sense that, hey, that's not fair. Or, everyone could grab a cookie at once and someone's gonna end up upset, is it true? Is it true? There aren't a whole lot of ways to distribute those four cookies to those four pair of eyes in which everyone's going to be happy. In fact, it's probably going to be likely that at least for a moment, three of the four children are going to be thinking or feeling, that's not fair. Yep. I'm not saying I've ever witnessed anything like that or been a part of anything like that ever, but we can imagine. We operate as human beings with an internal fairness detector, and we are particularly aware of its presence when others seem to get or have more than we get or have, or when that possibility exists in our midst. An internal fairness detector. And Jesus, who knew everything and was the smartest person to ever live, Jesus knew this. And so he teaches about this aspect of who we are and how we are as human beings. We'll read uh, one of the stories or parables that he told. It really happens all in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel, but some of what is important to understanding the context happens at the end of chapter 19. So that's where we're going to begin, chapter 19, verse 27. Listen closely. This is Jesus. This is the word of God. Peter said to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, what reward will we get? How big will our cookie be? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, and this is just another way that Jesus describes this event or culmination, this coming about, this kingdom coming. We may call it heaven sometimes. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel in places of authority and honor. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit, be given, receive eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The ordering of things. Just before this, a rich young man had asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus replied to that man that he must keep God's commands, which the man said he had done. And so Jesus said to him, keep also this command, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And then, of course, the man who was very wealthy hung his head and went away sad because he was a very wealthy person and so had much to give away and much detachment work to do. And that's when Peter pipes up in verse 27 and declares, we have left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And Jesus responds to Peter saying that he and Jesus' other 11 11 disciples will be rewarded gloriously for their faithfulness and for following Jesus. And Jesus was crystal clear about that. There's no ambiguity about such except for the unusual phrase... That was one of Jesus' favorite things to say, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first, inserting this element of mystery into Jesus' response, and then Jesus continued at verse 1 of chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and Jesus is about to explain to his disciples and everyone who's listening what the kingdom of God is is like what the reign of god was like what reality is like when god's way is being exhibited and lived out when god's will is being done and clearly jesus was speaking not so much of just a future event or reality as he was of a present reality that existed and that was available and that is available to us and to all people then in that moment and today as well if as and when We seek God's kingdom and pray that it comes. And help his students and his apprentices understand what that kingdom was and is like. Jesus tells this parable. For the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the reality of God or the reign of God The kingdom of heaven is like, here it goes, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius is what a laborer typically in that day would receive for a good whole full day's work as a laborer, for example, in a vineyard. About nine in the morning, the landowner went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. It's like Third Avenue in downtown San Mateo, okay? You know what I'm talking about? He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went and presumably worked. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing about five in the afternoon. He went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing, idle, not working? Because no one has hired us. There aren't any jobs. No one's offered us work, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And Jesus' disciples certainly had in their minds how this next scene in Jesus' story will play out. The foreman, in line with employment norms of that time, Doing what would be expected in that time, in that context, and what would be expected of him by his boss, the owner of the vineyard, the foreman would pay the workers who only worked an hour at the end of the day for only an hour, and at the same hourly rate as everyone had been paid throughout the day. That is certainly what Jesus' disciples listening to him then expected to be the next step in the story. They had worked an hour and so they would be paid for an hour of work at exactly the same hourly rate as the others who had worked all day, of course. And we say of course because that's the way also that our world works. People get what they have earned. People are given what they earn. You get what you pay for in America. If you work, you get paid. If you perform, you get rewarded. If you do well, you get a bonus. If you excel, you get promoted. You are worth what you produce. Your value is based on your productivity. Your sales, meeting your quota, impressing other people, getting attention, being good, the number of things on your plate, the diplomas on your wall, your title at work, the size of your home, how many friends you have on Facebook, the number of likes you get on Instagram, how popular you are, the number of boards you serve on. You are what you do. Your value and thus your worth. What you deserve or have earned or merited, or how much you are loved, how good you are in your own perception and the perception of others is based on how good you are, how bright you are, the grades you get, the college you went to or will get into, the job you have, how attractive you are, how tall you are, how thin you are, how indispensable you are, the numbers in your bank account, this is very much the world in which we live, the water in which we swim, and the worldview that most of us embrace because we know no other. This is how things are. And then along comes Jesus. Verse 8 again. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those, who, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, of course, because that's the way the world works. But each one of them also received just a denarius, a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, who's not present. It's the foreman who's giving it out. But they're grumbling against the landowner. And in Jesus' parable, those who were hired first and who had worked all day and who had earned a full day's wages were scandalized. They were in shock. They were offended. They were scandalized. And they proclaimed aghast, What the foreman already knew, these who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You have made them equal to us. But the foreman answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend, friend, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And Jesus ends exactly where he began, but not before asking two very good questions through the character of the landowner. First, rhetorically, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And the answer, of course, is of course you do, of course you do. And the second question, though, is far more piercing. Or are you envious because I am generous? The Greek word translated generous is simply good, but generous fits the context. To which an honest response would have been, yes, yes, we are envious. We are envious and we are experiencing and we are entertaining other less than virtuous thoughts and feelings as well at the same time. If we were in the shoes of the workers who began at 6 a.m., we would probably also have those mixed emotions among which would be envy. And to tell you the truth, you and I, many of us, when we take a good, deep, honest look at ourselves are just as scandalized by Jesus' suggestion as were the all-day workers in Jesus' parable and as have must have been Jesus' core 12 disciples who were right there who had been with Jesus the whole way from the beginning And also, as must have been the first generations of Christians who were reading Matthew's words for the first time and who had been with Jesus and suffered persecution and who had served and preached and gone and suffered. The early generations, including Jesus' first disciples and also including people like you and me today, who are promised by Jesus exactly the same rewards and exactly the same future, even though we have done far more than others. Are you with me on this? And we live with and subscribe to that very same code of ethics, as did the all-day workers. I have served on the facilities team or some other team for 20 years, And you're telling me that those other people's reward from God is going to be just like mine? I have given to the church. I have tithed of my earnings my entire life to the church and to God and to ministry. And you're telling me that people who only give a pittance regularly still today in their abundance are going to receive the same reward as me one day from God? Yes. Are you telling me that the 12 months that I have suffered in middle school youth ministry (laughs) are going to be rewarded in exactly the same way as those who won't dare get near the challenges and the complexities of being with middle school students? Yes, that too. Because that's how things are in God's upside down, first will be last, and last will be first kingdom. Because that's how God is. And that's how God loves. And yet we live in a world that is built on the principles of fairness. And that functions according to the laws of fairness. And we cling to that world at times. At least when and as doing so works in our favor, when and as what we deem fair serves our self-interest. It is revealing that we are not nearly as interested in or committed to or zealous about what is fair when we already have what we want. When we are... Ahead in the game when we have more than others. Or when something that is truly unfair has actually worked in benefit to us. In such situations, our interest in what is fair turns out to be far less. But at other times, we clamor for fairness. We cry out to God and everyone who will listen, that's not fair. Some people reject God. Reject Jesus because they say God's not fair. He's not fair. God, you're not fair. You haven't been fair to me. But in fact, God has been more than fair. To me, just as the landowner was more than fair to the early all-day workers who at 6 a.m. had no work to do, they had nothing, no opportunity and he offered them something and everything. How can we say God's not fair when we've been given so much? Brennan Manning was a priest who failed and whose life fell apart and who drank too much and, but who came to understand the overwhelming. Amazing, generous grace of God through his tragedy. And some of his many words are written on the cover of our bulletins this morning. Listen closely. Grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much we may have earned, our degree and our salary, our home and our garden, a miller light and a good night's sleep, all of this is possible only because we have been given so much, life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity, our faithfulness is a gift if we but turn to God, he quotes St. Augustine. That itself is a gift of God. Over the years, different of my kids have said to me, as your children, maybe all of us at children, as children have said, did say, will say at some point, that's not fair. That's not fair. And as someone who is progressing a little bit in the realm of fairness... I have recoiled at those words and tried to strike them from my children's vocabularies as early as possible and to nip them in the bud. Not because I'm not interested in fairness or justice, but because that attitude, which we all hold at times, represents a complete unawareness of the abundance and the grace of God in our lives in so, so, so many forms. I remind them as I try to remind myself, and you may try to remind yourself. We live in a world and in a time as incredibly blessed, graced, privileged people. There's running water in our homes. We live in a place where there are no mosquitoes. There are paved streets and doctors and judges and barbers And machines that wash our clothes and machines that wash our dishes. We have friends and family and smartphones and urgent care. I mean, you could just, we could spend the afternoon here going through the ways that we have been blessed, the ways that we're privileged, the ways that daily. Hourly, moment by moment over the course of our lives, we have been the recipients of God's incredible grace, even just in tangible ways, before we begin to name the many, many intangible, less tangible ways, things, elements of our lives and our existence and our lifetimes that have the hand of God's grace all over them. One of the problems with overlooking or failing to acknowledge God's grace in one's life is that not only does doing so reject God's grace for oneself, but also inevitably for others. The workers who began at 6 a.m. objected to the landowner's generosity toward others because they had failed to appreciate the landowner's generosity toward them in the first place. And because they embraced a worldview based on fairness first and foremost rather than the abundant and limitless generosity and grace of God. And so, one, they failed to appreciate and or enjoy what they themselves had been given. And two, they actually sought to withhold from or keep from others the blessings of God that others had not earned. And we see this all of the time if we stop and are aware and look around and are perceptive. We fashion our minds, in our minds, a God who is for us. But who is not just as much also for others. Who are different than us or who have not worked as hard as us or not proven themselves as we have. Or have not sacrificed like we have. Or who are outsiders or who believe a little differently or whatever. We see this all of the time in the church and in the world in realms as diverse as immigration and school funding and affordable housing and religious freedom and foreign policy and tax legislation and how we treat the stranger in our midst and the poor in our midst and the unbeliever in our midst and the different believer in our midst and those who do not or cannot work as hard as we can or have or are as productive as we have been or are or will be. Are you with me? And our world's views become clouded and contaminated by ungrace, by ungrace. The renowned Christian psychologist, author, seminary professor David Siemens once wrote, many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems And along with them, relational problems. Among evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, hear, we read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace. But that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. Yes, maybe our minds and our intellects, but not yet our emotions. Which creates all sorts of other issues, challenges, complexities, and the words that if we don't speak audibly, we speak internally. That's not fair. That's not fair. Maybe you saw, read in the news this week about the very wealthy billionaire who at the graduation of Morehouse College said that he was going to forgive the student debt of all of the students graduating that day. Surprise. What Jesus is saying here and pointing out is those students who scrimped and saved and worked during the summers and worked the weekend job or the night job and so didn't have enough debt at his annou- or as much debt at his announcement stand up and say that's not fair because my debt is so small I'm only getting a little bit less and I have worked harder how ridiculous would that be and is that not also what we do Imagine, this isn't how it works, but imagine if heaven is way up there and we live way down here on earth and we can earn our way toward heaven and toward God and toward eternal life, the best of us get up about a foot. Those of us who are the slackers or unproductive or haven't worked as hard get up only about six inches. But the gap between here and there is still eternal, is it not? And nobody gets there by their hard work, but only by grace, the grace of God in and through Jesus. And so how ridiculous is it for the 12-inch people who can jump 12 inches high to say to everyone else or to the 6-inch or 3-inch or 9-inch jumping people, To say to God, that's not fair. I jumped so much higher toward you than everyone else. I've been meeting with a small group of people to talk about some of Jesus' most challenging words when he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus goes on to say, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good alike and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is this description of this God who is abundantly loving and generous, gracious in every way. Because how ridiculous would it be if God only sent his son on the good or the righteous or God orchestrated his world so that the raindrops only fell on the good or the righteous. And what if it ends up that us, we, are among the evil and the unrighteous? We would not be clamoring then for a world of fairness, but instead a world of grace We are desperate for grace, whether we know it or are aware of it or embrace it or not. We have no hope apart from it. So we can tell ourselves that God is not fair or we can thank God that he is not fair. That we do not get what our sins deserve, but instead get far more than that. And that God continues to shower us with his goodness and grace through no work or effort of our own. The apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift or grace of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There's nothing that we can do. We can't get up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and work in the vineyard to earn God's love. God looks down on heaven at the best of us and the worst of us and everyone in between saying you are loved and showers us with goodness. May that not be an opportunity for us to say that's not fair but instead to fall down in deep and abundant gratitude and say, praise God that you are better than fair. Praise to you, God, for your love and your grace. It's the only way that we can breathe. It's the only way that we can stand. It is the only hope that we have. May the name of the Lord be praised. Pray with me. In varying degrees, God, we love rules and laws, especially when we are able or we think we are able to keep them. But remind us in the way of the Apostle Paul that we all have fallen short of earning our way, of achieving our way, of meriting anything much less your grace, much less eternal life, much less a place in the consummation of all things. Help us to judge others, to look at others, to live and move and work in our worlds, not simply according to the principles of merit, But help us to see our neighbors and to see our enemies in the context of your abundant and amazing grace for them, for us, for us and for them, for all people in Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.